so sort of the shape of it for me is is that there's this massive gap and this massive um, chance to maybe regain all the ground we've lost, but it's worse than people think. And I think we need to admit that and governments need to start getting more pressure from the people um, to regulate better. And companies need to get the message that they can't just take our data and use it against us without our consent. Canadian governments have been slow in regulating private companies' use of personal data. PEPIDA, Canada's federal data privacy law, was only introduced in 2018. And it wasn't until the past two years that Quebec, Alberta, and BC decided to try updating their approaches. And Ontario, who has the largest population in the country, still doesn't have any policy on the matter. But while we're playing catch up, there's a war brewing in the tech world. What will the future internet look like? Will it be a bastion of privacy, or are we walking into a world of further surveillance and data breaches? Kaya Meyer-Stewart is an entrepreneur and technologist working in cybersecurity. She thinks we're at an impasse, and what happens next could have powerful effects on the future of the web. My name is Eric DeCare, and this is No Simple Answers. Kaya, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Eric. You're the best. <laughs> oh, God. Big fan of <laughs> <Thanks. your> work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I appreciate that. That was very kind. Um, uh, first, just how you how you doing? It, these are crazy times. How are you doing as, as like a, a human being? That is a great first question. I'm doing okay, I guess. Um, things are weird. And just there's like the, the first layer of weird, which is, you know, of course, all the stuff that's visible. And then I feel like there's that invisible layer of, you know, that I think we're going to talk about next, which is everything that's happening kind of outside the sphere of my control and, and most of our control that, uh, you know, takes place in the cybersphere, takes place between satellites, between Internet of Things, um, devices, and, and just, yeah, in the, in the digital realm that we're more and more transitioning into, and maybe as an escape pod from, from the physical world. So in short, as a human being, um, I'm feeling pretty confused and, and also hopeful that we can get there together. Uh, well, that, that's a nice, that's a nice thought. That's I, I think I, I could use more of that. <laughs> I could use more of that in my life, I think. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I mean, yeah, you are in kind of like you exist in the tech world. And um, like, I don't know, I maybe this is where we start. Like in the last couple of years, we've seen some movement in terms of privacy laws and how companies should handle people's data. But like at the same time, we're hearing news like Facebook announced something like the metaverse and we're talking about web 3.0 all of a sudden NFTs and blockchain and like all these buzzwords that are kind of floating around. So I feel like the world's moving at two different speeds when we're talking about technology. Um, so I, I guess I just, we'll start with getting your take on like, where is the tech sector right now to you? I think you put it perfectly that the world seems to be moving at two different speeds. That's certainly what I see. And it's quite disorienting having one foot in the physical world and trying to ground that. And then one foot in this sort of mostly uh, real and has come to fruition already sort of tech universe. Um, and then trying to make sure that I can tell the difference because you talked about the metaverse. That's this idea that real life will be indiscernible from the internet and we can sort of merge those worlds. And yeah, it's interesting seeing Facebook getting involved. But I think what people maybe don't realize that I think is so important to say right now is that um, even when we're starting to become aware that there are two different speeds happening, 
I don't think people are aware of how far ahead tech already is and how much um, how damage has already been done by companies like Facebook. The cost that came um, before the awareness and the laws and the ethicists like Tristan Harris bringing out ideas in the social dilemma and, you know, through his work, um, it's not enough, you know, right now. And I think there's still a lot of waking up to do around just how much social media surveils us, how much um, our our data is not safe, even when stored by the government and by, you know, institutions that we trust, like hospitals, uh, universities, and so on. And then, of course, there's like the companies that are just playing loose and uh, and fast with our data that want to be the next big thing in, in tech. Hmm. I mean, uh, yeah, that's interesting. So I, I want to pull on that thread a little bit because like you mentioned that um, that they're ahead of us. First of all, who's they? And, and, and what do you mean by how, like they're far ahead of us? Right. So by they, I guess I mean um, most emerging technology companies um, or, you know, entrepreneurs. So I, I would not not necessarily include myself in that category, but, you know, I certainly work for, um, as head of product, a cybersecurity company that I'd say we're working on blockchain technology sort of at the cutting edge, this idea that we could use the cryptography that's inherent um, in blockchain solutions. But also there are companies like Facebook that have been sort of the bread and butter for a while. We'll just stick with that example. Um, so they can represent they in this in this scenario um, where, yeah, they've been connecting us to our loved ones for many years and we've kind of got scratched the surface of, oh, yeah, so maybe they were selling our data at one point. You know, the Cambridge Analytica sort of scandal came out a while ago and, and some people know the buzzword and some people know what happened. But I would really encourage people to go and look at what that really entailed because what it was is, is really this mass intrusion that... Um, is not finished happening. Like this is a company that owns your identity in ways that you don't even understand your own identity. Most, most probably like there are parts of myself over years and years and years that have been documented that I can't now erase from, um, you know, Facebook's logs and that they are going to have a copy of whether I leave Facebook and I've tried <laughs> or not. And, um, you know, we're using them to authenticate our experience, um, through, you know, making new accounts into things. We can use single sign on, um, with Facebook. And so they then get all the information about everything that we do once we've used them as a way to authenticate our identities. They have essentially become the keepers of our identities and they know so much and can sell that back to us. They can sell it to other parties. They can sell us things based on what they know about us. And um, I guess when I say like they're, they are so ahead of us, companies like that, but many others as well. AWS is a great example or Amazon, Amazon Web Services. Um, Microsoft, you know, all of the companies that are trying to get this big resource, which is the resource more important than oil, data, um, they're in a place where they could essentially like clone you and you wouldn't be able to prove that you were you because they'd have everything from like, they're not going to do this, I assume, I hope, maybe. Um, but if they ever did, they'd have more inter information about you um, than you could probably provide um, and you would be less of like a character witness to your own identity than they would be because they have historical data on you. They also have your biometric data now. So if you're using your fingerprint to sign in or your face, don't expect that that's yours. And if it's not yours, then how are you supposed to contest someone stealing your identity or, um, you know, companies using your identity to get through some 
door um, to, to get something that they want. And this is what I worry about with the metaverse in particular is like, we're all going to be taken there by Facebook anyway, um, if they succeed. And that idea is actually quite an old idea that we've been talking about in the open source movements and in the blockchain community and sort of in emerging tech in general about bringing people into a more accessible, more, um, more equitable kind of future where everybody gets a piece. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because like, I don't know, like I, I struggle because like w when you paint it that way, I'm like, right, yeah, Facebook, Twitter, um, AWS, Microsoft, like, oh my God, these are terrible, <laughs> like evil corporations. But I don't know, like, sure, I spend a lot of time, like an embarrassing amount of time on Twitter and Reddit and social media and guaranteed there's a ton of data out there that um, I don't want out there that's being, you know, harvested by these companies. But I don't know. A lot of people don't use screens as much as we do. So, like, why does this matter to them? Um, more people have access to smartphones in the world right now than clean water. So I'd be surprised if there weren't people at least somewhat living on their screens. And in just in my experience, and this is anecdata, so I have to confirm it. Um, in my experience, going to countries that are, you know, 10 or so years behind in technology, um, not so much adoption, but more just the infrastructure and, and um, getting up to speed with sort of the things that we're coming into um, we, or we've already come into an awareness of in the West. So places like Bhutan, for example, where um, I lived for a little while, that's in the Himalayas, if people don't know it. It's a small um, democracy slash kingdom. And people there are very into WeChat. You know, their smartphones connect them. Everyone's on Facebook. And it's almost like watching myself when I was there with friends, like just in a social environment, it was like watching myself in high school um, on Facebook, just posting whatever I wanted to post, having, you know, these really out there public disagreements with my friends or agreements, um, lots of pictures, lots of geotagging. And it was cool. Like it was a way to connect people. And I still, and as much as I love the idea of connectivity and I, to your point earlier, like, I think these are, you know, evil corporations or they're corporations. They've got, they've gotten bigger than the people themselves, but they didn't start out with those intentions necessarily. Right. Like it started out, I, I'm going to assume the best in people as a way to solve a problem, like one that we really all wanted to solve. And for many of us, Facebook has brought, um, you know, people back into our lives. But when I go back to that Bhutan scenario, which is only a couple of years ago, um, I see people that are using Facebook in exactly the way that exploits them the most, which is, you know, they're just living their lives and they're putting it out there, not really realizing maybe necessarily where it goes. And if they do, they're like a lot of us in the Western world still who are like, well, I'm not that important. Who cares? I don't care if people have my pictures. I don't care if people have my data. Like, I, I just want to live my life. Well, that data, like, is what is used to, you know, predictively um, process a bunch of information about all of us, you know, and determine human behavior and then help other interested parties make decisions about that behavior. People have to get past as well this idea that they're not important enough to have their data stolen because we're absolutely all important enough. And, you know, your individual data may not be used for any sole purpose that uh, hurts you directly. But I, I, it's hard to conceptualize, but all of our data being used against all of us is so much more powerful than your identity being stolen. And I think we're still in such an individualistic mindset about how we use the internet that we're not necessarily aware that uh, we're actually not looking out for other people. Yeah. Okay. So I think what you're like talking about there is this, the, the concept of aggregation, right? It's that you can paint a picture about a population, um, you know, just based on the sheer amount of data and you can 
determine trends and where the population is going. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, just to cite a recent example uh, here, the Public Health Agency of Canada um, recently uh, just came out and admitted to uh, tracking a bunch of people's cell phones to try to determine uh, next steps for public health measures and determining whether lockdowns are working and that kind of thing. Interesting. And see, oh, there's those examples as well, where then as a human being, I'm like, well, that sounds like an important use case and one that maybe I would consent to, but maybe one that I wish I could know about and then consent to because I agree with it as a human. And I guess it's that's where there's this fine line and it's always so much more nuanced and complex, but it's really hard to get into these you know, fine lines and gray areas of well, do I agree that we need to make sure that public health is is up to speed and it has the same advantage that tech companies have? Absolutely. But if they are more open about it, we will hold them accountable to it as you know a population, and that might not go very well for for um, you know our government or for public agencies just trying to do their best to keep us afloat. And there's unfortunately all of that um, ire or all of that public accountability will go towards those agencies and those parties instead of the ones that are actually doing all the stuff behind the scenes and don't have to report it because they don't hold the same responsibility um, or take the same responsibility um, to let people know what they're doing. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So, I mean, I, I'm curious about how we can reimagine this, right? Because like this whole thing seems like a very damning indictment of capitalism. And, you know, we could boil down a lot of it to just like the things that we value in our system and how we measure worth through dollars and not uh, through other like social good or other things. Um, there, there's there's an, other possibilities that we, you know, we could be pursuing here. Um, so let's just go through the history of the internet a little bit. So, uh, you know, we're talking about web 3.0. What if one web 1.0 was static websites in the nineties, like, I could go and make my little page with HTML uh, and hyperlinks. That was the big innovation with that. Then we have Web 2.0, the Internet of Things. Like now the Internet's not just on my computer. It's in my pocket, on my phone. It's in my smart speaker. It's in my fridge. Like I can have like anything can be connected to the Internet now. And then Web 3.0, that's where we start thinking about, at least from what I understand, is what Facebook is talking about when they're getting into the metaverse, which, you know, the way you're describing it sounds more than just like the Sims with goggles on. It's like it, there's, it has bigger implications than that. But um, like, I don't know, what, what do you want Web 3.0 to be? I want Web 3.0 to be the self-sovereign internet as much as possible, as much as people want to be involved in that. I want, you know, people who, who at a very baseline just want their data and identity protected their you know their privacy respected and an ability to participate in a new more human centered economy i want all of those people to have a space to essentially operate as a node um, who's incentivized to be on the internet in the first place and you know blockchain technology is is an underlying infrastructure that could support that and that's why i've always been interested in it this idea that the internet could be distributed so everybody gets a piece if they want one and can be part of processing interactions and transactions. And, you know, in a Bitcoin, uh, as an example, that was the first use case uh, blockchain ever. Um, you could play video games and that processing power could be used to, you know, process transactions and interactions between nodes and people. Um, and you could be making money playing your favorite video game. Um, you could be taking pictures to, of plants and like adding them to a plant app to, or, you know, trails and and making sure that the network of trails and a hiking app is is better um, and more comprehensive. And you could be getting incentivized for that rather than paying the app to tell you um, where stuff is. And then, 
you know, adding stuff for free as just a contributor to the app with no value of your time sort of being um, recognized. If we're going to go into a world where we're even more interconnected than we are already, I'd like to make sure that I own my identity and I can take it away from, you know, any platform or service I'm using at any time that I choose. I want to be incentivized to give my data away with consent or not at all. And I want to um, make sure that I can interact with people who get to make the rules and the governance models that can be um, played out to create a different economy and just create different communities uh, using technology like blockchain, where you have um, consensus mechanisms, you can set up the rules. They're called smart contracts. You um, you decide what you want to program as the as the you know best intentions or rules of your community, and then the technology ideally just faithfully executes what you all said you wanted until somebody has a problem and then you vote to change or people leave if they have to. And it's just a completely different mindset. Yeah, I hear you. I think the potential here is like insane. And I think, I don't know, just for the person who's, who's not in this world, I think a lot of this, because you, you talked about infrastructure, right? And I think understanding that, like the how blockchain works, is the key to unlocking like all the potentials that I can bring. So I'm going to take a swing at trying to describe it. Um, just for anyone who's listening right now, who's listening to all these big ideas and who might not be um, fully following. So I'm going to try to break this down a little bit. So, I mean, to me, blockchain brings us back to kind of what the original idea of the internet was, right? Like every computer is just connected to each other, a completely decentralized network of things. We can pass information around through these networks. There's no huge server farms. There's no, it's just, it's very much just peer to peer like connection. Um, blockchain is akin to that in that you see this is where you know it, it it allows me to spread data in the same way where i get to send data to another person and i can guarantee that they're going to get it safely and i can track the fact that they have it and they can do the same thing with their data for me and then and, and this is where the chain element comes in. So if they pass my data on to someone else, I get a kickback being like, look, your data moved on to the next thing. I mean, that's one version of this. Yeah, great point you made is that it is this return to basically what I think T TBL, Tim Berners-Lee and his crew envisioned for the internet. Um, and it's just this, you know, meant to be a collaborative community um, oriented connectivity enabler. And that's just always going back to our core human values, I think, about wanting to be connected. Um, and then there's this question then of trust. And I think this is where Web 1.0 lost its way and Web 2.0 lost its way even further in that like trust can't just be established if you're strangers. And there was no enabling force before that would allow for um, you, to, you and I to trust each other if we're strangers and I'm sending you money and I want to make sure that you're going to get it securely and that you're going to then tell me that you have it and not make me send it to you again, for example. And that, you know, you can never contest that I sent you that money or I can never take take these backsies and try to, you know, sue you for keeping it or um, not, none of that was possible to do. Let's say if we'll just keep the uh, money example, none of that's possible to do without a bank, basically, for a long time. And a lot of people still feel that way because a bank is the intermediary that serves as the trust, the trust that you don't have with a stranger. And 
great, except for that they take their cut and they process your information quite slowly sometimes. And they also collect data on you and have information about you that I'm not necessarily always comfortable with. Blockchain allows for everybody in a network. So let's just say for um, simplicity's sake that you and I both install a program on our, on our computers. We're both strangers, but we're now entered in with this program into a network where our computers all become processing nodes. Um, when people send each other money in the network, my computer processes it processes it and records the transaction. Your computer processes it and records the transaction. One of us might be the winner of that um, processing um, storage element. So like actually getting to put the process, process transaction into the blockchain and hash it and everything like that. That's the person that, in the network that would be incentivized. But all of us have a record of what's happened. So we are serving as the bank in that scenario. We are the trust, um, all of us. So you'd have to take down the entire network, which is a lot harder than taking down a bank in order to um, contest anything that's happened in that record. Um, I also just really want to quickly clarify or correct one thing, which is that you hopefully, and I love it, said that there would be no more server farms in Web 3.0. And I hate to say it, but we're already there. We're already in a place where the exploitation of 3.0 is alive and well. And there are many server farms that make it very hard to argue that um, anything is truly decentralized right now. And I've encouraged listeners to go to uh, arewedecentralizedyet.com, I believe it, or it might be .org, to really understand um, who owns the network. But at least there's that transparency, right? Like you can at least see, for the Ethereum network anyway, which is a blockchain network, who owns uh, most of the servers. And it's quite bleak at the moment. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fair. That's fair. Yeah. And, and like, yeah, I mean, computing power is a resource and people with money will have more access to those resources. Um, so, okay. So, so blockchain, I, I see how that solves the problem of data collection, right? Cause it puts us in control of our own information. Um, and I think what we're alluding to with the bank example is just this idea of needing someone else to manage your money. Like we, we can argue over whether or not that's a problem. I think that'll be an individual choice for a lot of people, but like, I know the government, the bank of Canada was looking at, um, creating a crypto currency like equivalent, but just for Canada. And, but you know, to do that would like completely like negate the need for credit cards and for, well, I, I don't know. We might need, still need credit cards, but I, I mean, it's just that, that, there's a potential for a seismic shift there. Maybe. Although, like, the bank being the seismic shift is is kind of not the dream. This is the part that I always struggle with, too, is, like, I actually worked on enterprise solutions um, when I worked at Consensus, which is um, the ecosystem running on top of the Ethereum network. And we were kind of the outcasts a little bit um, on my team because we were helping organizations, you know, big corporates, essentially, and governments and, and customers that were enterprise um, to onboard into these environments and, and test blockchain. And a lot of people were like, look, we're trying to get rid of these organizations. We're trying to make them obsolete. So could you not? And I think like the problem is that there at least has to be a transition period. And I'm scared about who the new elite is going to be anyway. Like let's say big organizations that own our data have a lot of resource and power as a result. The same thing's going to happen in this world, but it's less regulated. It's a bit of a wild west. And it's people who, have, who know more about the technology, but aren't necessarily as responsible, as regulated, as understood, you know, for a long time as the banks and, you know, other institutions that we come to trust for a reason. And then there's also the convenience angle that's like, look, people don't want to manage a really hard to use wallet experience where they could lose their money if they're sending 
you know, if they get one digit wrong and they, if they lose their password, they're screwed. There's tons of like locked up Bitcoin and Ethereum and other cryptos in the world that can't be accessed because nobody has a backup password. These are the things that I'm trying to solve that others are trying to solve and it's getting easier, but I don't think we'll ever be in a place where we have enough room in our brains to like take all of that complexity on and manage everything ourselves. So we will always be giving something, to, you know, somewhere. And I guess my reimagined dream, and this isn't necessarily like in, in alignment with everybody that I work with or know in the community. So this is just my opinion is that essentially like we give away as little as possible, as much as we need in order to continue to live our lives without too much complexity. And we just have more of a heightened interest in how much we're giving away to whom. And ideally, like we scatter as much as we can across multiple carriers of, or stores or you know, keepers of our data and our information. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so, so then where does that put our lawmakers? Because like, you know, I, I, I can barely wrap my head around this technology. And, and like, I don't know, it, it's easy for me to get pulled into every which way in terms of like what the potential is and what could happen. But like at the end of the day, you're right. There's a lot of, there's still potential for abuse. There's still very powerful players in this space who are ahead of us, who understand this better than we do, who understand this better than the politicians do. What does regulation look like, right? Like what would the ideal policy, like how do you legislate for something that hasn't happened yet or that is currently happening and that we're just not up to speed on? Like I, I, I don't know, like it's a government's a bureaucratic thing and, you know, bills take time. And when there's something like a pandemic going on, like people are kind of, they only have bandwidth for so many problems at once. And in my mind, it's like, how do you convince, yeah, how do you convince Justin Trudeau and, and you know, by ext extension, um, his cabinet and everyone that has policy making, decision making power right now, how do you convince them that the pandemic in all of the physical ways we're experiencing it right now is equally terrifying in all of the digital, you know, vulnerability we've set up for ourselves. Bad actors, let's just say, who have a lot of knowledge, they're taking full advantage of the fact that the pandemic is slowing us down, is disrupting the supply chain, is leaving us more vulnerable in our online spaces. And that is, to me, terrifying for the future. But in the short term, there's also people losing their lives every day and lots of practical problems to solve. And I don't know that I could know enough to ever feel comfortable saying to someone like, you've got to choose this as much as you're choosing this um, when one thing is just so viscerally obvious to everyone in Canada and beyond. And one thing is very difficult to wrap your mind around. And that's unfortunately what is being taken advantage of right now, because it's very real to the people that are working in the technology. You know, it already has in a way become their universe that they live in. So then, so what do we need? I'm scared to say that because again, I feel like I don't have the whole picture all of the time. And so I know what I would say you know, if I'm just speaking to my part, but if people, when people ask me what the solutions are, I'm often, you know, nervous about putting anything forward because I know that I lack so much context. And when I talk to government um, officials, which I have in the past in Australia, I know that they tell me a lot of stuff I wasn't aware of about what, where their priorities are and why. And then I have a little bit more of an idea as to why things are taking so long. There's also not a lot of transparency in regulation. So I guess I would start there. I would say we need full transparency about what conversations are being had between industry and government and why um, they're being had and sort of who's got an agenda when new bills are being passed through. That's a real issue in Australia where there will be bills passed through kind of at the last minute or at a time when no, no one's really paying attention. A great example of that was one that passed that essentially um, mandated that 
there must always be a backdoor built into technology that comes out of Australia for the for the police to um, you know have access to if needed. That disincentivizes a lot of business and is actually a very clunky solution to something that they perceive to be a problem. But because you know industry and people like myself and others who have a lot of knowledge um, and could have come in to consult on that, um, those kinds of regulatory decisions were not brought in. Um, and these were just discussions happening in a very small room with very few uh, different perspectives. This went through and nobody really knew about it until it was too late. I don't know what the situation is in Canada, but I would encourage any government to bring in as many different perspectives as they can to consult, um, to bring their insight. And that includes the big corporates that have a, you know, a corporate interest. Everyone's voice needs to be represented. And then that needs to be made really obvious to people that are interested and want to find the information about you know, what their rights are. Beyond that, like we just need some baseline data privacy laws that I would say that the GDPR uh, data privacy uh, regulation and compliance is incredibly, um, incredibly comprehensive and a great start. And that's what everyone in Europe is entitled to right now. And um, I hope that Australia and Canada and other countries start to look around and see what everyone else is doing that they could be doing a little bit better, because that's the first way that you um, make progress. And then you work together, I would hope. To, with other countries, with all of the different stakeholders who have an agenda, but also have a reason to sit at that table, and you decide what um, you think the best thing to do is next, keeping in mind that we need an economy, we need, you know, we need people to thrive, people need jobs, all of those things, but also we all deserve a basic human right, which is our privacy and our identity to belong to us. Can I just ask you one question? Yeah. So what would you like Web 3.0 to look like, just knowing what you know about it? Uh... I like I, I I'm learning a lot more about it through you and through some of the preparations I was making for this podcast. Um, I, I I don't know. I just I I'm not a fan of having people who don't have my best interests at heart having that kind of power over me without me knowing about it. That's what's uncomfortable, and that's the tension here. And. Yeah, so I, I'm for anything that can pull us away from that. And we're at an interesting point in history, right? Like um, corporations are a relatively recent invention. And like before it was empire, then we reached democracy. And then now we're at the age of the corporation, in my head anyway. And there's a tension between these structures of, of governance uh, that are elected by like of public officials and corporate interests and I think that's a lot of what we're feeling. Um, at least that's a lot of what I'm feeling in these conversations. And uh, I'm not sure what the path out of this is. Me too. To me, the most important message here is that we go further together. So you don't have to know what the answer is. I don't have to know what the answer is. The more puzzle pieces we put together of people that have that basic tension you're talking about and people who have the skills to you know, bring others with them on the ride that are interested in being you know, a community together in a global sense, as long as we have those nodes in our collective network of consciousness, we can put all of our energy towards solving that together. It's not any one person's job or responsibility. And I think a huge part of where we are is because we assume that there should be a special, you know, chosen one or that people are smarter than us and, and should be the ones in control. And we all deserve a chance to advocate in some small way and just recognize that we play a part in the bigger picture. And I'm really happy to hear um, you describe that tension so well, because I know you're not alone. Ah, well, thanks, Kaya. That's really kind. Um, that pretty much wraps things up. So I just want to thank you for coming on.
thank you so much for having me and for, yeah, putting this conversation out there. Well, there you go. If you like what you heard, please leave a rating, subscribe, and tell your friends about the show. If there's something you want me to cover or someone you think I should talk to, you can give me a shout. I'm on Twitter at Eric underscore DeCare or reach me by email, eric at nsapod.show. Thanks for listening.